Okay, today I'm in, in York with uh, Chris Hudson, bookmaker, and also president of the British Racecourse Bookmakers Association. Thanks very much for agreeing to talk to us on a busy week. No, my um, pleasure. First of all, I mean, let me just do a few basic things. Yeah. Where do you bet on course and how many days a week would you work? Uh, depending on my health and wealth, uh, both are quite key factors. Um, where do we bet on course? Yorkshire meetings, Tattersalls, um, Epsom Rails, Epsom Derby Rails, Aintree Grand National Embankment, uh, Scottish Grand National, Main Ring, um, a sprinkling of point to points. Unfortunately, they're diminishing now. So I work between 35 and 45 days a year. Okay, so how healthy would you say the betting ring is these days? Um, let's say, as I used to get on my reports at school, could do better. Um, we are suffering a fall in bookmaker attendances, um, a fall in our stock. Uh, we're down, I believe we're down about 20% attendances this year to last year. Uh, when NJPC took over, there were about, I think it was 11.44, I have got the list at home of the, by area of the associations, we're now less than 400. Um, so of course we've got fewer bookmakers carrying as, as much fixed cost. So it's not healthy. Um, the betting ring is suffering from competition from the online, uh, the digital betting. We've got unlicensed uh, layers on Betfair. So it, it's, not an easy, it's not an easy route at the moment. Okay, so what do you think the biggest problems are facing it? Well, the biggest problems are the competition from the online that can offer different terms to us. And um, of course, they've got a zero cost base. Um, and you can, if you want to uh, lay a horse, lay a two or three horses in a race, you can do it on the exchanges. Now, obviously, you're going to forfeit a bit of margin, but you're not going to have the fixed costs that we have. So that about sums it up. Yeah, they sh should bookmakers sort of accept that that has happened about 20 years ago now and that they need to work around it rather than just say, oh, it's, got, it's going because of that. No, I would beg to differ, Simon. The proliferation of the online came more during, lo during lockdown. And of course, that led to the consequences of increased problem gambling, which of course, uh, the Gambling Commission work works with a broad brush and treats everybody the same as a one cap fits all. So therefore, we're tired with the online brush and uh, the exchanges I, I grant have been around for about 20 years, but I tend to find the bookmakers rely more and more on them. Uh, you know, the software has trackers on things like that. Whereas before, I mean, I, I will admit I've, I've used, I was one of the first to use the exchanges, but we had somebody sitting at home and we'd phone them up and say, what's on the exchange? We're backing on the, on the exchange rather than uh, backing on the course. Okay, now, even since I've been in the game, which is a lot less time than you, we've got no tic tacs, we've got no field books, we've got no chalk, we've got no whiteboards, and the betting ring has survived all those changes. Mm. I know that the, um, the demise of cash has been a little bit, you know, has been a little bit premature, but do you think the betting ring could survive without cash, and are the bookmakers preparing themselves in case that happens? Well, firstly, I accept the obliteration of the tic tacs, the field books, and the tickets from chalk. Uh, but you don't have that on the point to point, do you? Where you've got the bedding, no bedding exchanges. So um, that shows you that it can survive. Uh, and of course it can survive without, uh, no, it can't survive. With, we need, cash is essential. Cash is king on the race course. You can come to the race course, put a chunky bet on in cash. Uh, you know, it's taken straight away. The price is guaranteed by the bookmaker. I would 
doubt very much you could get such substantial amounts placed off course in cash. Yeah, right. So are, are, are the bookmakers actively looking? Are, are they preparing themselves for the worst in case? Well, the worst in case is no cash or use a card. Now, uh, people do like to use card, but for small bets. Now, it's time consuming for the bookmaker. If he takes a large bet on the card, he's wondering, is he going to go through? So there's not a lot more that we can do apart from, you know, use debit cards, but it slows the whole process up. And spinning it around, would the novelty or the increasing novelty of betting in cash be, be something you could use to promote the betting ring? Come race and bring your race course ready. That's right. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Bring your race course ready, bet cash, pay cash, and uh, get a fixed price to a substantial amount of odds. Okay, now, this is just my opinion, but the betting ring as a collective doesn't appear to be promoting itself at all. Some bookmakers do a great job of, you know, on social media to attract people to them when they come racing. But shouldn't the, book, the betting ring be proactive as a group to promote themselves again, you know, to combat all the other things that you say that are going against it. You're absolutely correct, we should, uh, and the race courses have said as much when we have our meetings with them, that we need to you know, promote ourselves more, give us a paper and we'll promote, it, promote you with it. Uh, but uh, the, when we ask the lesser informed associations, they don't really want to get involved. Um, so yeah, I fully agree that we should promote ourselves more, uh, the flamboyance and the style uh, of the, having a bet with the bookie, uh, and the fact that you get a fixed price, a guaranteed fixed price, to a substantial amount of money. Yeah, and, and I mean, you see the Open the Racing Post today, you see full-page adverts for lots of, but why can't the bookmakers themselves have a full-page advert saying, if you're coming to York today, all these bookmakers are betting there, come and see us, you know, something like that that's right in the face of the racing public that you never, you never see it? Uh, well, simply, I would think that most of the people that buy the racing post aren't coming to the races. Uh, so I do feel that there should be some collective advertising, but when we've tried to work with the smaller, associ smaller associations before, they don't want to do it. Uh, now, we have a, one of the best observed websites in the country, uh, but of course, uh, customers, or punters or customers, let's be correct, don't, don't look at trade websites. Um, so yes, we, should, you know, we could do more and we should do more. Okay, and has your association, you talk about the other ones, has your association ever considered spending money on an advertising campaign? Proper we, money, you know, really go for a big kick. We have, but where would the money come from? You'd have to ask the bookmakers to contribute. Uh, and it wouldn't get a, you know, you'd have to get every bookmaker to want to contribute. Uh, and that would be difficult. Now, we, we've discussed it, uh, and we've thought about doing it ourselves, but you know, it's a case of using our reserves to fund other people's businesses. Mm. Uh, so if we could all work as one on this and other things, it would be a lot better. Wouldn't it be possible to make a rule that you have a, a vote, a democratic vote on it, and then if, if the vote went through, you know, there'd, there'd probably be a fairly small amount of money each bookmaker would have to pull up. Could you, not, could you not impose it as, a, as an organisation? Well, you can't impose anything, can you? Um, how would you impose it? As a condition of membership? Well, you know, people would say, well, if you said, right, well, how, who's, if we're going to have an advertising campaign, how would you do it? Which area? You'd have to promote the whole ring, every area, from pitch one to pitch 65, the rails, tattersalls, and the silver ring. 
Now, as you've already alluded to, each of these areas always conflict in business. Mm. I fully agree that we should uh, try and be more in the, in the public eye. I've tried to speak to Matt Chapman on this, but uh, you know, he's never come back to me. So, yeah. Now, I mean, I, in my past, one of the people I worked for, Dave Phillips, he was on one of the negotiating committees. Yeah. I remember him being absolutely exasperated. It was the boards on rails when all that was being negotiated. Yeah. And in the end, the racecourses just pretty much did what they wanted. Um, because they, the bookmakers couldn't agree. Well, that, that isn't quite the same. But I was at the same time I was working on the 2012 negotiations and the boards on the rails uh, hadn't, at which point it was a case of the one for one. That was what the problem was over. It wasn't boards on the rails. This was something that uh, John Banks fought for under the Competition Act. Um, so, yeah, we, we, maybe we should, yeah, we do try to stick together, but uh, there's some that do and some that won't. Yeah, it's, I mean, I don't want to keep labouring the point, but aren't bookmakers often their own worst enemies because they can't agree for the better good? Is it because the better good may not do them so much good as somebody else, and that's why they don't agree? Exactly. Is there no way you can change that mindset? Um, I know you can't, you know, you, it's not your job to do it, but yeah. until they do, well, surely it, it's going to go down It is down our down. job to do, um, but it's finding common ground on a common problem. Okay. Um, do, you, do you think that racecourses appreciate the atmosphere and the draw that the on-course bookmakers provide? I fully do, because uh, myself and our association speaks to a lot of the racecourses, of the racecourse groups. Obviously, we've got a lot, a lot of local racecourses here, and uh, we, uh, we, we, they, they do appreciate us, and they go out of our way to help us as well. I think it's, do you think that's countrywide? Um, well, I can only speak for the people I speak to, and I speak to, I speak to Dick on White at the Jockey Club, Steve Clare, I spoke to Tony May yesterday. Um, I, I, do, I, I do think it's countrywide, yeah. I mean, um, have you any evidence where it isn't the case? It does, it does seem that some courses, the bookmakers are seen as a bit of a hindrance rather than a, rather than a draw. Which courses are these? None of the ones I've dealt with, but so. I would say probably the, the, the midweek tracks that run regularly. I don't want to name any specific ones. No, obviously not, but. Um, they would rather that nobody was there. Well, that's not an alternative business model, isn't it? Um, and I would think that's been brought on by the effect of COVID. Okay. Now, Arthur, you talked about um, Tony May there. Sorry? You talked about Tony May there, and we, we've had a discussion in the past about the look-alike bookmakers' pitches that pop yeah. up. Yeah. They're popping up everywhere. Yeah. Um, are the bookmakers doing anything to try and hope the intrusion of that, or well, is it something that you accept now? Well, the thing is, when you say accept now, it's been around for a long time. This is, we're going back to the Fred, uh, Fred Doan, Betfred days. Those, those were brought about then. Um, now, it's the race courses that decide where they go. Now, I, I speak with Nigel Roddis fairly regularly, um, and he makes sure that those, those positions are entirely within the, in the boundaries that they should be. And only as recently as Newmarket a, a couple of weeks ago, there was a case where it might have been a grey area, so he, they, weren't, they weren't put there. Okay, in the previous part we talked about the, the looking like um, you know, bookmakers for sort of pictures that turn yeah. up there. Um, how important 
are the betting ring managers to the betting ring because there was a recently there's been a bit of a scare that they might not even exist anymore after the, after the new sort of the new takeover. Um, so how important do you think they are to the, the running of the betting ring? Well, the betting ring manager is a creation of when the uh, NJPC took over and the Ferguson scheme got torn up, and. Uh, where the bookmaker, the regional associations managed the bookmakers' pitches, which probably wasn't an ideal situation at all. Um, but at the same time, there was a member of the Racecourse Security Services who was called the uh, uh, betting ring, he wasn't the betting ring manager, he was the ring, ring official, betting ring official. Uh, and he, saw, he, he settled, looked at the, the disputes between the bookmakers and the customers, and he would then try and arbitrate or refer it to a higher level. The betting ring manager now does both the job of the um, of the uh, betting ring, the, the um, betting ring manager, the betting, sorry, the uh, racecourse security person, the betting ring official, and um, it's all into one. Now, since then, we've moved on. A lot of the bets are, as you've alluded to, uh, not on uh, tickets and book and write written in a, in a book with a pencil, but they're now they're now actually on a com on computerised printed ticket. So therefore, the, the area of dispute is falling by more and more. I mean, I'm not sure how many disputes there are now. Um, and times have moved on, you know. As I said, there's so, there's so fewer bookies now. It doesn't take a lot of work to put the bookmakers in the position. Because, of course, previously, a bookmaker had his pitch. So he would turn up and just go in it. Now the bookmaker picks, and it's the betting ring manager that asks him which pick he wants to go into. But again, you'll find when you walked out to where I saw you earlier, all the bookmakers are in the pitches, have a rough idea where they're going to be. Um, so it's a case of that it does it sorts itself. And certainly at quiet meetings midweek, uh, even on Saturdays, the bookmakers put themselves in. Yeah, now one of the things I've noticed about York, my first visit, and I yeah. thoroughly enjoyed it, it's a lovely atmosphere, yeah. very relaxed race course. Yeah. It's a lot different where up down south, with summer meetings, and you've got drunken people just, you know, on a Saturday afternoon getting quite aggressive with bookmakers disputing things. I yeah. mean, even if it's only one occasion like that per big meeting, yeah. surely a bookmaker needs some sort of protection. They do, they do. I know. So you know, what would your, would your alternative be? No, I'm not offering an alternative, saying there's an alternative. What I'm saying is, is that times have moved on and there still will be betting ring managers. You know, who says the won't? When the uh, um, RDT have taken over yeah. from AGT, yeah. there was talk that the betting ring managers, managers would all be gone and they'd have to retrain you know, new people. Well, nearly all the betting ring managers have got like 20 years experience. And they, they know how to deal with these situations. Whereas if you've got somebody that's used to just fixing the computer, it may be quite scary when you've got a group of drunken lads all getting aggressive. Simon, I agree on what you say about the 20 years experience, but again, who has said the betting managers are going? Well, this is, we don't know yet, do we? We still don't know. Um, well, we don't know, we don't know that they're going. We know, all, all, we're, all we've been told is it's based business as normal. Yeah. So, I don't know who said that they're going. But they work for AGT, and AGT have lost the contract, and RDT have only got people that fix computers on their books, as far as I know. Well, the thing is that, yeah, that, that's, pro that's probably the case. But, um, you know, there are such employment, there are people who have employment rights, don't they? Yeah. So, so you, you agree that you, you'd like to see 
you need a, re a, a betting ring manager there to police the betting ring if there's ever a dispute? Um, I, I main meetings on Saturdays, yes, but I can't say, you know, but it's certain all weather meetings get very busy. I mean, the Northumberland Plate, that's an all weather meeting, isn't it? So it's just horses for courses. Yeah. yeah, it depends on the crowd. Okay, so we've done the controversial stuff. I want a bit of, a bit of your background. You come from Well, I might do a bit more in a minute, but okay. do, do you come from a bookmaking family? Oh, yes. My great-grandfather, in 1923, formed the Bookmakers and Backers Protection Association, which then became the Northern BPA, and there's now the British Racecourse Bookmakers Association. Well, we changed our trading, well, our name, because we have a lot of members outside the Northern area. We've 193 members of our own, and uh, there's probably 15 of the East of Scotland who've affiliated with us. There's a lot of members in the South, members who we've mentioned earlier on that are members of us. Um, so yeah, my great-grandfather formed it in 1923. He was also the first on-course bookmaker to be recognised by a Tattersall's committee. And I've got an old annual from Copes that's got him in it. Um, he was chairman of the Victoria Club London for 20 years. Um, and. His son, Harry, was a, is the next director, uh, sat on the B, next generation sat on the BPA, Northern BPA. My father, Peter Hudson, was on the Northern BPA. So I followed on. Um, so yeah, we, we've, got a bit of, we've got a bit of track record. So, so were you one of these kids that was on the race course learning to clerk at a young age? My first experience was here 50 years ago uh, the, when there was the third inaugural running of the Benson Hedges Gold Cup when Roberto beat uh, Brigadier Gerard. And I called, my, I called my grandfather Pop. I said, Pop, why aren't we, why aren't we uh, paying anybody out? Because he bet on the straight forecast. Yeah. So from then on in, um, we had what we called a Skinner in the race. So I thought, well, this is the game for me. Uh, and you seem seems quite late, 12. I mean, were you aware of what they did, you know, before that? Did you not sort of keep, keep were you aware that they were book, your family were bookmaking family, and was that what you were going to do? Well, it came about because they were, they all, my grandfather would always stay away. Um, and what, when there was a three day meeting at Redcar, uh, we stayed at Solburn, the Zetland at Solburn. Uh, and uh, so the first day, I'd have to go racing with him. Um, so I looked around the paddock, um, and then on the last day, we were going to do a three day meeting at Clash with Goodwood. He said, um, well, he said, come on, let's have you doing some work. You've had the holiday on us. So I was giving change and watching what he did. And it progressed from there. Uh, but in those days, a completely different type of business. You know, a lot of, a lot of your customers were known faces and uh, accounts. Uh, obviously, Grandad being going as long as he was, had a, you know, and his father before them, they had a fantastic clientele. So, uh, but yeah, so that was it for me. When was the first time you actually stood on course as a rep or whatever on your own, as the boss? 1978, Epsom Derby, and every year since, at various odd race meetings and point-to-point -point meetings. Okay, now looking back, were the people that would regularly beat you, like punters? When, when you were, were there plenty of punters that would win off you overall? Would you yeah. still take bets off from back then? Oh, you did, you always took them on. You'd, you'd challenge people like Phil Bull, Phil Bull uh, Frank Buxery, Joe Lowes, as late on as Ian Armitage. Um, uh, yeah, because you would, and you'd take them on. Uh, you, they, you'd, you'd always get knocked back. People would always get knocked back. 
because of course they didn't have the facility for hedging on exchanges. Yeah. So how many, compared to then, how many people would you be frightened of now if they came for a bet? Um, they got the cash, we'll take the bet. Yeah. Are there, so are there many professional punters who bet on course where you, where you bet? Well, it's very difficult to say who's a professional punter because the customers are far, well, punter or customer uh, is far better informed these days. Um, but at the end of the day, we beat them all. Um, so who were the best or most feared punters that you knew over your career? Well, in my granddad's day, um, there was Phil Bull, um, Ian Armitage, Frank Buttery, Joe Lyles, um, the guy from Manchester, his name slips on memory for a minute. Um, and there was a Tommy Robson, who was from York, Topper Robson. Um, yeah. So, and going back to the betting ring, yes. how do you see the future of it? Are you optimistic or are you pessimistic? Should we say no comment? Well, you must have an opinion. Well, I'm always a very glass half full person and people laugh about it. But we've got increased competition from the online. They can trade on better terms than we do. They've got very lower, a lower cost base. We've got falling turnover, a decline in bookmakers. Um, you don't see many new ones coming into the business. Um, so what would you take, make of that what you want. We're a margin-based business. If your costs go up and if your turnover doesn't go up elastically with it, you've got a problem, haven't you? Okay, so going on from that, would you advise a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed young person with a few quid that was keen to become a racehorse bookmaker, if you were to give them your honest opinion, would you tell them yes or no? Simon, these are the arrangements at present. You buy a licence from another bookmaker to operate on the track, it expires in 2052 with a potential uh, follow-on, but that's the fact, the certain facts at the moment are, the costs are going up, your business, you've got to give your business back in 2052. Uh, you've no increase, your, your turnover is going to go up in line. Um, as an association, we are talking to the, some of the race courses to try and get the licenses extended with that in mind to bring new people into the game. Um, but that, 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 those are the facts as they are at the moment. Yeah, can you just elaborate a bit for people that don't know about the 2052 thing? So that basically means that if a bookmaker buys a pitch for a quarter of a million quid today, yeah. 2052 is gone. Is that basically what it means at the it, moment? There, there's a potential to roll it over, uh, but there's absolutely nothing in black and white about it. So they don't actually own, it's not something they've got like a mortgage, a, a deed no. for or anything like no, that? No, not at all. It's, uh, it's, it's a position to choose on the track. Yeah. Okay, so finally, if you could change, if you had the magic wand and you could change something to improve the betting ring for the better and hopefully prolong its life, what would it be? Um, I would think um, to try and make it more attractive to the consumer, stop the bookmakers relying too much on the exchanges. You don't see bookmakers betting without the favourite anymore or offering money back if second. And it's because we've gone down this route of just uh, mirroring the exchanges. Um, so yeah, that would be the fact. And the thing, I'd like to see a bit more flamboyance and style amongst the bookmakers. Um, okay, so because that was a great change from when I was starting in 1972. Uh, the bookmakers were all dressed in collars, suit collars and ties. Um, and they were, you know, they were dressed to kill. Um, so, okay. so um, 
the future bright or not? Last one. Yes. Is the future bright? It's always bright, Simon. You could be in Ukraine, and every day you wake up, it's bright. Absolutely. Well, Chris Hudson, thank you very much. And thank you much indeed for inviting me. Cheers. Thank you.